0: I applaud your attempts at uh, clapping. We don't always have to be Presbyterian. In fact, Matt's told me that we will have another shot at clapping at the last song. So those of you who got into it but then ran out of time, you have another shot at at our closing hymn. And so we can do that again. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We began studying this letter in January and uh, have been looking at it, recognizing the promises that God has made to us, our identity, uh, to clarify any questions that we might have, that our relationship with God is based upon the reality of Christ Jesus and what He has done for us. And as we are trusting in Him, there are certain realities that we cling to, promises that are associated with the reality of Christ and Him crucified, chiefly that we are His children as we believe. And as his children, we begin to grow to be more like him, and we are free, and we have life, and life comes in him. Our text this morning will be the last three verses, or four verses, 18 through 21. But Before we look at those, I want to go to the Lord in prayer that he may speak with us. So let's go to him now. Our Father, we do come with great expectation. Maybe that's... Uh, too strong of a statement, but we have reason for great expectation that you would speak to us. And so I pray that you would heighten our expectations by the Spirit that dwells within all who believe. For these are your words through your servant John that speak life to those who hear, reminding us of who we are in Christ and at the same time of instruction now that we uh, belong to you. May your words guide us, comfort us, instruct us, correct us, And feed us, we pray, that our lives might be conformed more and more to your way, to your will, to be like Christ. In this, may you receive honor, and may we have the joy of growing to be what you have created us to be. Followers of Christ, imitators of Christ, those who are in unity in Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. A reading begins in verse 18, chapter 5, 1 John. Hear the word of the Lord. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of God. I have to confess that as I I read these final words, that it seems to be a, a very odd way for John to end this letter. Not so much verses 18 through 20, but verse 21 just seems to be, to be an odd statement it's coming from out of nowhere. Throughout this letter, John has been focusing on a few concurrent themes that just run throughout uh, this letter. Everything that he's writing helps us to understand the nature of God. It reveals to us the nature of God and reminds us of the relationship that we can have with God in the person of, of Jesus Christ. If we were going to outline this entire letter, it would be easy to do and easy to remember because we focus on the three L's. Chapter 1 and 2, we realize that uh, uh, the light. Chapters 3 and 4, we see the love. And then in chapter 5, John uses the word, and this is the life, over and over again, uh, repeated, reminding us that that's the themes that are running concurrently through this letter. And then even as he sums this up, he gives us three essentially bullet points that almost every Christian, every Christian should be able to say amen to. As we we look at what John is saying, he says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We know that we are children of God. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Theologian John Stott commenting on those three verses says, here are no tentative, hesitant suggestions. But bold, dogmatic Christian affirmations which are beyond all dispute, and which ne- neatly summarize the truths already introduced earlier in the earlier parts of this letter, and so verses eighteen through twenty just continue to reaffirm everything that John has already said and neat package bullet points, but then in verse twenty one as John ends this letter, he seems to go off in an entirely different direction and opens up a subject that he's never addressed before, at least in in this letter, and really not in anything that he writes. And he writes, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You want to say, what in the world is John talking about? I mean, nowhere in this letter does he mention the word idols or even the concept of idolatry. And even if he had, You know, he's wrapping the letter up, and we'd be asking ourselves, what does this have to do with us? But at the same time, I think as odd as this verse is, we need to realize that this is the focal point of the conclusion of this letter. and It is vitally important. It's also practically important. Because there are some things that we need to understand that John is writing in here, in these last words, that he's not really introducing a new subject but he is putting an exclamation point on everything that has already been spoken, and at the same time warning us of the contrary of what he has taught us. Now, the primary point, or at least the foundational point, that we need to understand of verse 21 that John is speaking is this, that idolatry is a very real issue, and that we as Christians need to be aware of that. Now, I imagine many of us probably have a difficult time with this, at least with that, that notion we're not disagreeing with John. We agree that idolatry is foolish and not something that we need to be engaged in. But it doesn't seem to be something that really pertains to us. That seems to be something that's far more primitive, and we are more sophisticated than that. It's far wiser than to bow down before some fat Buddha and assume that somehow that's going to enhance our lives or bring us closer to God. Many of us may have seen the movie Luther, in which Luther had come to Uh, new insights of just how prevalent and easy it is for people to fall prey into superstition and even religious idolatry. There's a scene in which Luther makes his first pilgrimage to Rome, and as he's walking through the streets, he becomes astonished and then sickened by the reality that people were peddling every kind of thing uh, for the sake of religious benefit creating little statues, little idols, little trinkets, things that uh, if you have possessed that you can be forgiven or give you greater access. And Luther, uh, just literally, it, it made him sick. He pushed back against that and began seeking the one true God that comes through the only one in Christ. And not only Luther, but the Reformers pushed back so heavily against the whole idea of, of idolatry that very few of Reformed churches or churches in Reformed heritage have any type of imagery Within their, uh, within their sanctuaries or in their worship or maybe even anything in their lives. and While I appreciate the intent of the purity of worship, I do think, at least I think, that we've gone a little too far and we've lost any appreciation for art and the beauty that is consistent with what God said. But that's a whole different subject. We see and through history, and we seem to have learned, that idolatry and images and statues and, it, it are just kind of foolish, and so we are above that. Except when we walk into a Christian bookstore, I'm reminded that we're not too far from that. When I was in Jackson, Mississippi, in seminary, I remember hearing a radio station promoting a Christian bookstore as a Christian station promoting a bookstore and reminding us that that store had everything you needed for a vibrant spiritual walk. And in my sarcasm, I said to the person riding with me in the car, I thought Jesus was what we needed for a vibrant spiritual walk. But apparently, you need glowing, praying hands. Apparently, you need a picture of Jesus' face that also has a Light switch is a nose that can fit right on there, and apparently you need bookmarks with all sorts of things, because that's what they're promoting. And we have all sorts of trinkets. Themselves are essentially innocent. Tacky. But tacky's not a sin. <laughs> but people do feel that they need them. They feel that their lives are somehow more vibrant if we have these images, the uh, 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 idols and icons. And so whenever I walk into almost any Christian bookstore, I'm reminded that we're not quite as sophisticated as we think we are. And we are not quite uh, so far from the idea of we need little helps in order for us to grow spiritually. But even if we agree that that's really an issue for us, I really don't think that's what John is getting at. I mean, certainly it's under the umbrella, any kind of pagan practices where we are engaging in superstition and bowing or feeling the need of of some sort of idol. That falls under the umbrella of John's instruction to uh, keep away or stay away from or avoid uh, idols. But John has in mind something that is far more subtle and something that is far more pervasive and something that is far more spiritually stifling than the trinkets that somebody might possess, purchase, or even reverence. John Calvin observed that our hearts are little idol factories. In other words, what Calvin was saying as he looked at his own nature and he looked at the people that are around him, he looks at the people all through Scripture, is that we are all prone to make idols of some sort to add to our spiritual life, whether they take front and center or whether they are just supplementary to our, 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 our spiritual vitality, we are prone to crank out and manufacture idols. Now, our, our factories are not all the same. Your factory may not crank out quite as much produce as mine does. may not be nearly as productivity. And while essentially all idols are idols, we come in many sizes and shapes and, and ideas. And so what you crank out may look different than what my factory cranks out. But Calvin, I believe, is right. And John, I think by warning the people here, seems to be suggesting, because he's writing to believers like us. He's not writing to people who are trying to understand the basics of Christianity to determine whether they're giving their lives to it. John is writing to a people who have had one of the best lineups of pastoral teaching that ever in history. But even ours can't come up, can't match, even my predecessors, and certainly not me, because they had Paul, who began teaching them for a great length of time. And then John pastored them for a time. before John came, they had Timothy, Paul's protege. They had tremendous teaching. They had great substance. John is writing to them not because they didn't know they were supposed to stay away from pagan idols, but because there's a propensity in the hearts of all of us, it's part of our brokenness, part of our fallenness, to crank out the idols in our lives. And so while our factories may be different, all of our factories remain in business. Now, it might be helpful if we have some idea of what we're talking about, and so I want to look at a couple of functional definitions that, that should be helpful to us. The first one comes from the Anglican from the 19th century J.C. Ryle, who was tremendous, tremendous insights and godliness, and his definition was this. Idolatry is a worship which is honor due to the triune God and to God only, and which is given to some of his creatures or to some invention of his creatures. I think it's a good definition because it cuts it, it, touches on what John is speaking to, at least in part. It's a matter of giving honor, worship, adoration, place in the lives, not to God and God alone, but also to, or instead of God, to something he created. Could be another person. Could be creation itself. Or to a cre- something created by some of his creation, which would mean something that's man-made, because only man is created to have the capacity to create, made after the image of God. And so it may be something that man has made that we begin to see as idols. And again, in the Old Testament, we see the creativity of the artisans who are able to crank out different statues, different idols. But we also realize that it doesn't have to be something that is tangible that man creates that becomes an idol. Stott, also commenting on this um, passage, talks about the fact that ideas can also become idols. John would have certainly had that in, in mind because at the time that he's writing, the thing that he's combating is something that is permeating the church, an idea known as Gnosticism. I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but Gnosticism was basically a philosophy. And those who were in the know, who had spiritual, extra spiritual sensitivity, uh, but I'm being facetious with that, but that was the claim that they had, they just happened to be in the know. And so they were elite. They were special. And if you wanted to be special and elite, and you would, ha- you would embrace this higher knowledge, higher philosophy. It was a man-made philosophy that sort of brought God into it, but... It was not the gospel. It was not focusing on the person of Christ. It was an idealization of knowledge alone that became an idol for people. And it's one that's not difficult for us to grasp as well because we have philosophers, we have people, we have people who think that because they are wiser, at least in their own eyes, or have degrees of academia, that therefore they are elite, and that is what provides them their status and their influence and and perhaps their power. but we also need to hear another definition that I think might help us a little more. Tim Keller says this, an idol is anything other than God that gives you identity and status, shapes your heart, in other words, gives comfort or distress with its presence or its absence, or directs your behavior. See, it's not just a matter of the ideas, it's not just a matter of some statue or some icon, but it can be anything in our lives other than God, even if God is still present in our lives, even if we're still walking with God, honoring God, and, and, and trying to serve the Lord, but anything in our lives that gives us our identity or our status, the presence of it or the hope of it gives us comfort, and the absence or the danger of losing it causes us despair anything that causes us to behave in a particular way because of its promises or because of its threats. It's interesting with his definition, I think, is coincides with what John has in mind. The primary reason that I, I believe that is because if we look at the verses leading up to this, in verses 18 through 20, we see that God, through John, has already addressed every one of these concerns. I mean, if you have a question of identity, we see that John has already addressed that when, in verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God. Verse 18, when he says, anyone born of God. In other words, we are of God. We are children of God. The promises of the gospel, when we believe them, it gives us our identity. We are children of God who have been born of God. There is no greater identity that we can have. The the living true God who created all things has made you his child. That's an identity. The fact that you're a member of a country club doesn't quite measure up. Even being a graduate of the University of Tennessee may be close, but it's not the same. I'll get to the Tennessee idols here in a moment. You have a question about comforts. In verse 20, what more comfort could God be giving to us than this? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Or even up in verse 18 when he says that he who was born of God, that's the focus of Christ, it should be the, he who is begotten of God, focusing of Christ, it was a play on words there, protects those who have now been born of God's spirit. And the evil one can't touch him. God is providing us comfort through the promise of our identity and what God has done for us in the person of Christ. And if you have a question of behavior. Those who have experienced forgiveness of their sin, who have been set free from their sin, and have the Spirit dwelling within them, John begins and says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. In other words, our behavior has changed because of the impact of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. See, these are not as weird as it might first appear John, giving that summary statement, then says anything other than embracing these promises, these truths, continually reminding ourselves, rehearsing these, and living in light of these things, anything else that is substituted in or supplementing, that thing is an idol. And we who belong to God need to be aware of that, and we need to be a people who are not subject to the demands and the promises of idols. Keller says elsewhere in a way that perhaps would be helpful for us to understand and to ask ourselves, do we have idols in our hearts or what are the idols in my heart? An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. In other words, not necessarily consciously, but emotionally that, that you cling to. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning and then I will know that I have value. And then I will feel significant and secure. Now, that could be any number of things. And I want to touch on a few practical applications that are pretty common, not because this is an exhaustive list or that we necessarily have a, a lot of problems with this in our church. We're all creative. Our factories are cranking out all different things, but these are just suggestive. They may or may not apply to you, but they will help us kind of grease the wheels for us to understand what may be functioning as an idol in our own lives. So I'll begin with where most people probably expect me to begin in our culture. we will begin with money. I don't think that too many people would disagree with me that money is the God of our culture. Money is what influences, money is what powers, money is what motivates, and so in that sense, to whatever degree we buy into it, the possession of money is therefore equal to uh, power are all good things, then we've created an idol. But you don't have to be somebody who sold your soul to, uh, for, for money in order for money to be functioning as an idol. If you are somebody who has far more comfort because you know that you have five years worth of savings in the bank and you are trusting in what is in the bank as opposed to what God has provided and what God has promised and your comfort rests in your bank account. Or if you're somebody who finds yourself angry, bitter, or upset because you don't have money and you don't see any means to get the money, Money may be an idol in your life because you are seeing money as the object by which you will find the security and the hope and the power and the influence or perhaps even the status that you desire. Now, maybe the problem is not so much the money, but you don't have a job that's going to pay you the amount of money that you you feel will give you that. Or even still, it's not about the money, but it's just about the identity that you can have with a particular position. Pastors are probably as guilty as anybody, if not more guilty than others, because we can rest in the position and cry poor mouth and at the same time appear holy at the same time. But What is that job that is going to save you? What is that job that will impress people enough that even though you may not have money, that they will respect you or will pay you enough that people will respect you because you have this job that is paying out? What is that job that is going to deliver you and is going to save you? What is that position? As if one position is of more importance to God than another. Every job has an opportunity to glorify God as a reflection of his character. It may not be employment. It may be an issue of relationship. What is the relationship that you have to have? I've seen any number of, of young adults, whether male or female, if they could just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or if they could just have a husband or a wife, or those who aren't married, if I could just have a child. And that is their identity. That is their hope. And the absence of those relationships has makes them sad, sometimes bitter. And then when they have those relationships sometimes they find themselves disappointed and still bitter because the one who was desperately wanting a husband finally got one and then she looks at the one she got and thought, "Lord, I figured you could do better than this." Or the ones who have the children, they raise their children as if their children are an extension of their identity to such an extent that children must be perfect because otherwise you won't respect us. They've made those children into idols it may not be relationships or money or things of that nature it could be something that uh, uh, maybe something that is far less significant like recreation and in certain places in this country i think that this is a rampant one and people don't understand it i know in tennessee and i don't think we're the tennesseans are the only ones subject to this but there are otherwise in intelligent, moral, educated, upstanding, even godly people who act like morons every Sunday that the University of Tennessee loses. They're, and they've been losing way too much uh, recently. So there are a lot of morons running around in Tennessee. But anyway, that's, um, there is a sociological study that was done uh, a number of years ago that church attendance in Knoxville and the surrounding areas in East Tennessee drops the day after Tennessee loses by as much as 20%. They're not the only ones. Anyone who has a team and you're rooting for the team, that's fine. It's a great recreation. But if you get so angry that you cannot sleep because your team lost, that you think the coach should not only be fired but hung or burned or something, uh, that's because, you know, we should be better. We deserve better. You have moved from enjoyable diversion to getting your identity from a team that you're not even a part of, and it becomes dangerous because it affects the way we behave. Maybe it is ideas. I think in our, I don't want to say culture, but in our evangelical, conservative evangelical culture, I don't know if there's anything more than politics that proves that ideologies can become an idol to us because those who we disagree with are not just wrong. They're evil and need to be eradicated. It's not bad enough that we can eliminate them by voting them out of office. But we become hateful. And we are willing to divide from other believers, others who are born of the same seed, the same spirit, who are alike us. We are willing to divide and assume that they're not even Christians when we have more in common in Christ than because we just differ on a few political issues. As if somebody's not allowed to be wrong and in Christ. I hope we are. I'm wrong about a lot of things, Carolyn tells me. (laughs) And politics, while important, isn't raised to the same level. See, we get our identity or our comfort. We, politics, if our people are in, we're comforter. If somebody else is in, oh, no, the world is coming to an end. In fact, if our guy's not in, he's the Antichrist. That's uh, both sides of the aisle. When we see these behaviors in our life, and it may not just be in these, but we, realize, we need to realize that there is a danger. There is a, probably idols present. But one thing I want you to notice... I want you to think about and perhaps even answer of the things that I just listed money jobs, relationships recreation, especially Tennessee football politics, which of them is a bad thing? None not one of those things is bad, not one of those are things that Christians should avoid or not participate in see it's very sub- subtle. But we take something that is good, innocent, perhaps even a blessing, and we allow it to give us our identity, our hope, our comforts. We move it into a position of idol in our lives. And even while we are praising God, even while we are seeking God, even while we may be engaged in Bible study, it functions a lot like a virus in your computer. You can do everything you need to do, but eventually you start slowing down a little, but you don't notice until there's a crash. The presence of idols in our hearts and in our lives does that very thing. and is a very subtle and yet a very potent spiritual detriment to us. Now, we move to what John has said, and I'm not going to spend as much time dealing with this, but John didn't just say be aware. He says that we are to guard ourselves from idolatry. The word that John uses in the Greek is the word philoso, which means to guard, not simply to keep from or to uh, avoid, as the ESV and the King James and the NIV, and most Bible translations, keep yourselves, it's not wrong, but it can give the wrong idea. But the word there really means to, to guard, and guard is an active word as opposed to keep from or avoid, that's more of a, of a passive I mean, you have to be active in in avoiding, but it's more just to stay away from. And there's a significant difference, and we can understand it in this way. Imagine that you are considering where you're going to put all of your money into a particular bank, and now imagine that a particular bank guard at the bank you're considering, uh, whose responsibility is to guard your money from robbers, what if that bank guard uh, assumes that his responsibility is merely to avoid bank robbers and burglars, as opposed to guard your money from bank robbers and burglars? Would you feel comfortable putting all your money in there? See, there's a significant difference between avoiding and guarding. And What John is saying in this passage is not only do we need to be aware, but he's telling us that we need to be diligent as well as alert in the guarding of our lives, our hearts, spiritually. We may ask, how can we do that? And John, I think in one sense, in these verses, gives us a pretty good clue, even as we just summarize it, because if we take uh, verses 18 through 20 in one sense, and verse 21 on its own, we might put them opposite one another and just say this, here's how you become diligent, is reject what is false and embrace what is true. That's really what those verses are saying. 21 stands against everything else in the entire letter, but particularly against those verses as idols which are false and the gospel which is true. And diligence is something that we are to grow in. It means that we're growing in our understanding of the truth of the gospel and the promises that God has made and about who God is and about ourselves and the reality that we all have the propensity to crank out idols. And the alertness is to understand that very thing. Calvin was right. Our hearts are little idol factories and we need to be on the lookout for anything that is beginning to occupy a place in our affections that rightfully belongs to God alone. And so we are diligent to grow in our understanding of the truth and, and then alert to the issues and diligent to apply the truth to make sure that the uh, falsehoods do not grow in our lives. Most of you probably are aware that, that several years ago, I uh, went under, underwent cancer treatments and during the time that I was doing chemo, which was in the wintertime in Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, it gets cold. And so germs are pretty common, and colds are very common during the wintertime. Carolyn, in order to make sure that I was able to maintain as much strength as I possibly could so that I could take as heavy of a dose of the chemo as I could so that we could kill off the cancer cells that would have otherwise perhaps killed me. She made sure that our house was antiseptic. Our kids carried around with them their own little uh, hand sanitizers, and they were using it several times a day. Every doorknob, every knob, every f- surface in our house, whether it's kitchen, doors, bathrooms, everywhere, was regularly wiped down with sanitary wipes and Lysol, so that the germs that were in our house would be minimized, so that the viruses could not spread and then weaken me. And even though we were in an environment where colds are very common, and at a stage of life where three kids were in three different schools, each exposed to other people and and their own germs, that was the only winter in our family's history that no one even had as much as a sniffle or a cold. And The reason for that was because of the diligence and the alertness that Carolyn had to make sure that there are all sorts of possibilities that would bring in germs, and our kids were certainly carrying germs. We we, We create our own germs. But being aware of that and being diligent to do what she was able to, kill those germs, we were able to make it through the winter healthy. The same is true for us in a spiritual sense. We, we're cranking out our own idols, so even staying away from things is not going to be the issue. But being aware of that and being diligent to apply the power of the gospel to our hearts and to our lives will minimize the impact that the, God, that the idols would otherwise have on, our, on us. We are to be alert and we are to be diligent. And it's not just because John tells us or because it's a command, but because there is a promise that goes along with the obedience. Jonah, if you know his story, had a mini vacation where he had time to think and not a lot of things else to do as he was cruising in a fish. Thinking about life, future, whether he had one. He made a prof- had a profound insight that was so profound that he even forgot it a few days later or didn't embody it. He is us. But while he was thinking, he really was awakened to this reality, and he declares those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And when he's speaking, and I for a long time tended to think of forfeit the grace. Okay, if you have idols, you can't be saved. Certainly, that's not the case. And Jonah wasn't rejected despite all problems that he had. And we're not saved on the perfection of our ideas or the cleanliness of our hearts from idolatry. We are saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ who was shed for us. And yet the principle is true. He's not talking about the f- grace that leads to salvation necessarily. He's just talking about the grace for everyday life, the grace that gives us peace, the grace that allows us to have joy, the grace that allows us to have hope and comfort and all the things that we want, that we seek in idols. Jonah said, look, whenever we seek things in an idol, ultimately it comes back to bite us. It lets us down. It has demands and it never delivers. And what happens is when we put our trust, when we cling to an idol, even when we are clinging to God at the same time as He was, we forfeit the grace of leads to peace or to comfort or to hope or wisdom. We're we're forfeiting those graces whenever we're clinging to an idol. And we live our lives longing for things, and we look for them in different areas. And God has told us, and John is reminding us, it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And when we cling to those, when we are not diligent, and we are not alert, and we are not active to guard our hearts, we are forfeiting the very things that we are seeking in those idols. So when I teach this and preach this to myself, to you, it's not simply, here's how we will be better than other people. and It's not, here's how we will merely be obedient. But God is in his grace saying, here's how you can be fulfilled in a way that I know you want to be, the way you were created to be, and it is only found in God and in Christ and the identity that we have in him and the hope that we have in him and the comfort that we have in him and the promises that we have from him and in nothing else. And so don't be deceived. The promise of God is this, that when we have trusted in Christ, we have all that we hope for. And when our minds become more conformed to Christ, we will realize how blessed we already really are. Cling to that. And guard your heart from idols. And experience the grace of God to give you all that you hope for. Let me pray. Father, we do give thanks to you the word that you have granted us. We thank you for this seemingly peculiar instruction that John has given to us. And we thank you for the wisdom of those who have understood and have shown us that it is not, the idea of idolatry is not what we tend to limit it to. Statues. the frivolous giving away of our affections and hopes. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to realize the treasure we have in you and the love that you've given us to be able to believe and to be recipients of that so that there is nothing else. that would rival our attention and affection for you, that would fool us into believing it can provide the hope that we long for. Help us to understand you are our all in all. I pray this in Christ.